All right, Justin, if you didn't have to work for the rest of your life, how would you spend your days? Oh, my God. If I didn't have to work, if I didn't need this paycheck, how would I spend the rest of my days? That's a really good question. You know what? I would really enjoy being able to read without a purpose, like in journalism, and especially like doing this new column, a lot of reading turns out to be research, right? Remember as like a kid when you could like read during the summer for no actual purpose, where you could just read something because you wanted to read? You could still do it now, but a lot of that is layered into having a purpose behind it. Maybe I'd get like real into reading. I'd build myself a library on some Beauty and the Beast type stuff. (laughs) You'd be both Beauty and the Beast in this case. Exactly. Get me a reinforced ladder so I can swing around the room. What, What would you do? I would probably start a ranch okay, <laughs> and raise goats and make cheese um, oh. <laughs> just to give to people if I don't have to work for it. And I'd probably have a bunch of kids. Oh, see, that sounds nice. What would the cheese brand be? What would the name be? Oh, I don't know. It'd just be Soleil's Cheese. I wouldn't have to brand anything if I don't have to work or need money. I like how I asked what the cheese name was and not what the kids' names would be. <laughs> Cheese is more important. Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Salejo. In this episode, we speak with Reem Asil, chef and founder of Reem's California, an Arab bakery operating in Oakland and San Francisco's Mission District. Food is at the intersection of all these communities that it's going to take to challenge power on a larger scale. Let's organize them. During this interview, we talk a lot about what makes a restaurant, which is a question that I think a lot of restaurant people don't think about because we just sort of assume we know what a restaurant is, right? But during the pandemic, Reem has really put that question to the test and pivoted. I hate to use the word pivoted, but she did. She pivoted her restaurants to be community centers, to serve people who weren't just customers. For example, she turned Reem's Kitchen in Oakland into a commissary kitchen and provided around 2,000 meals to people experiencing food insecurity every week. She also had to shut down Reem's Mission District just temporarily, but she still puts up pop-up services, farmer's market stalls, and sends out meal kits every week. On top of that, Reem is turning her bakeries into a worker-owned company, which is really unheard of in the restaurant world. I mean, it happens but not a lot. And so she's going to talk to us about how that works and just like what that entails. So it seems like during the pandemic, you've been working out just your definition of what or how a restaurant should be, how it should operate and exist in the world. And I would love to hear you articulate that for us. I didn't open Reams to have a restaurant. (laughs) That's like the all honesty. I kind of fell into being a restaurateur. Um, So I don't even actually know what the traditional definition of a restaurant is until I sort of got into this world. So my my vision of Reams is always to be sort of the the space, this like transformative space Uh, and not really for the consumer, but for all the ecosystem around it, you know, so. Yes, the, the person who walks in our door, but also our workers, also our vendors, also the neighborhood and the area, all the things. Restaurants are a manifestation of people's identity and culture, and food is so integral to that. And 
if anything, I'm like, communities have figured out a way to take care of each other when our government hasn't thrown us any kind of bones. So I think mm. restaurants uh, will continue to play that role in 2021. Like we are going to face one of the most, you know, devastating uh, recessions that we've ever seen in our time. And restaurants are going to be at the center of that. Our food systems um, are going to be integral to that. So how do we build like really strong, resilient uh, restaurants who can feed people who are in dire need right now to be fed? I would love to hear how you navigate within capitalism to like preserve the mission and really like make it, you know, have it translate from point A to point B because, you know, as as you know, many restaurateurs with ambition are often beholden to investors and asked, you know, is yeah. this profitable? Is that profitable? Um, and community is not always profitable. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you make that mesh? Not very well, obviously. <laughs> I have no investors, so <laughs> I've been trying to get investors. Like I was like, I don't know how much more stuff I have to have on my track record for you to invest. Mm. And you know, in a way, that's great. Like I think that it provides us the flexibility to do what we want and to adapt how we want. Um, I think that we have a lot of fans on the sidelines, but uh, it's very rare where you find people that want to put their money where their mouth is. And, you know, I think that is a limitation of the system, right? Like capitalism is, is a model based on extraction of resources. Like it's going to be very hard to get any investors who would be like, yeah, I want to put myself last. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, uh, like I want to take all this risk and put myself last. So actually, like ironically enough, Reams was like uh, right before the pandemic hit. I I was about to get investment because I was like, we can't just like live on debt. You know, this is not healthy for the business. And if I can get impact investors, like maybe that could, you know, help infuse some capital to really do what we want to do, which is sort of like launch these sort of big visions of what Reams could be. Um, and it's I'm very lucky that I didn't I like put a halt to all of that because I could have been in a much different situation. And in those conversations with investors, my gut was telling me like this is not the model. Because even these social impact investors are putting monetary value, like my business is for sale and my business is not for sale. So in many ways, sort of not having investment in that in that traditional sense uh, makes me immune from some of the other pressures that some of these bigger restaurants that sometimes I look at with envy <laughs> have on their hands, right? <laughs> when the pandemic hit, I was like, I have to figure out a different model of existing. The worker ownership piece of it got fast-tracked, you know, so we, we decided, okay, well, the time is now, because clearly our communities need a little bit more ownership in order to fight through this, right? All of us feel so helpless, and I feel helpless. Um, why don't we do this together? But, you know, this society was not built for worker ownership. It was not built for cooperative governance. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm like learning how to navigate these other models outside the confines of the industry and it's been interesting and rewarding and challenging and messy so that feels good you know I'm like don't tell me this narrative of scarcity where we can't get by because I paid my workers you know five dollars more on hazard pay and we got rid of tip like we did all the things that we we're like scared of doing and we just did it and you know it's been rewarding so yeah like are we rolling in profit no but I mean given that's a 
pandemic, I don't, I didn't expect that. Right. Yeah. I mean, how has this circumstance affected, I guess, your definition of success? Like, what is your definition of success <laughs> in these times? Yeah. Right now, my definition of success is that I have a team that's like loyal and devoted to the, the vision of Reams and they feel transformed by it. They're happy, um, they're healthy, and they're safe. That for us is like we got through this year keeping our workers safe, feeding lots of people, you know, fulfilling, you know, our mission. And to me, that feels like success. Yeah. I mean, I think other people are thinking about what could this look like if we just like rejected these notions of what a restaurant has to be and joined us in the cause of changing our business model to really sort of be more worker centric for me like you can't change a business model be to worker centric without giving workers some stake in it like it just doesn't work that way your workers just then become tokenized you have to give real ownership and control in order to to make it centered around the people who are impacted by this industry. So for us that like, obviously success is like the building of wealth, but also just the building of leadership and um, a different way of doing things that becomes more normalized over time. You know, it doesn't become the outlier because like Reams being a worker owned space doesn't really change the industry. <laughs> um, it has to, it has to scale and uh, people have to follow suit. All right, so I, I feel like this is a good chance for us to have an important conversation. <laughs> what is capitalism? I feel like this is a phrase that gets thrown around all the time, especially when it comes to restaurant stories. And what we're talking about, essentially, if we strip everything away, it's just an economic system, right, where the essential feature is the motive to make a profit. That's all it is at its core. Now, my follow-up question why do you hate capitalism, Soleil? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, um, right, when I think of capitalism, I think of the Ferengi in Deep Space Nine <laughs> who have, you know, all of their, their, um, their whole society is centered around capitalism to an extreme extent where they're always talking about profit and really only enter relationships based on how much they can profit from them. Yeah. Ironically, right, the Grand Nagus, the leader of the Ferengi, is played by Wallace Shawn, a known socialist, which is very funny to me. But anyway, yes, capitalism is something that I think pop cultural critics talk about a lot and also just have this tendency to say, you know, because of capitalism, right, right? as a way of saying this is why things are the way they are, which I think is really reductive. And I think no one really pauses to explain to people like what that means. Um, so it becomes this weird like culture war thing, right? Of just like, why do you hate money? Why do you hate billionaires? <laughs> right. When really it's about, I think to me, having a stance that is opposed to capitalism is about how you want everyone in society to be taken right. care of, not based on right. their profitability or their ability to be a good worker, but just because they exist. And, you know, there are certainly a lot of nuances within this. There are certainly a lot of systems that are not capitalism that are not ideal or great. But I think we can always strive to do better. Right. 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 No, I 100 percent agree. Because what do capitalists argue? Right. Capitalists argue that basically a capitalist society is fair because you're getting the rewards for your hard work. But if you have a 
different upbringing, a different background, where you've seen your hard work not pay off in those kind of dividends. And you also understand that there are people from rich backgrounds who, you know, that leg up came from inherited generational wealth and this and being born into probably a privileged class. And this isn't something that, you know, so like you or I would understand. Like, I feel like inherently it's very easy to be skeptical of capitalism in general. But it also makes me wonder if like the, you know, the differing opinions fall along ethnic lines or um, class lines. Like, is this, is it a generational thing? Like are most people our age seeing this the same way we are? I'm curious. Okay. So there's a lot of different entrees into this, right? I think in the food media, we really fall prey to the sort of Horatio Algeristic notion mm. that people can pull themselves up by their bootstraps because a lot of our coverage is based in entrepreneurialism. Right. Um, we do so many stories about immigrants, for instance, who came here with nothing and then they use food to um, claw themselves up, right, and actually make a living for themselves. We do those stories all the time and it, it can be really easy to fall into that narrative of like if you work hard enough you will get what you want you will get the american lifestyle that you want right and i think that kind of highlights this idea of how in a capitalist society not everyone is going to have an equal opportunity towards success right there isn't an equality of outcomes i guess is the best way to put it and if you read enough food stories you know even outside of the ones that we've done that accurately portray this industry that that kind of stuff will be related to the reader i think no i totally agree and i think that well i mean there's so many ways in which food intersects with this too because we write so much about entrepreneurship and we are in many ways business writers as right. well as culture writers right. we are at that nexus when we cover food but for instance right like when you see a story about a little girl selling lemonade to pay for her own cancer treatments there are many different ways to see that story right there are many different ways to interpret it and read it uh, even journalism which is supposed to be objective can fulfill the sort of capitalist um, agenda <laughs> essentially by framing it as a as an inspirational story right of this little girl's entrepreneurialness and how she will succeed because she's working so hard. And there's another way to read it, right? Where you can use it as an example of just like, this is why we are so screwed up because this little girl is abandoned right. by our society and has to sell lemonade <laughs> to pay for a life-saving treatment. It's, it's all tied up in the same sort of knot and untangling that has been... I think our charge for this generation, um, I think, as writers and as thinkers. So stories like Reams, where she is an immigrant who doesn't play by those rules, right? Who is really interested in renegotiating what it means to be an entrepreneur in a way that is more communal, um, that isn't so mired in a worker boss hierarchy. That's different. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I'm Soleho and Justin Phillips and I are back with Reem Asil, chef and founder of Reem's California. You know, during the BLM movement, you had people that were rushing out to spend money at mm -hmm. Black-owned restaurants and like, you know, praising mm -hmm. diversity. Yet... Like, what does this, is there any lasting impact about this? Like the idea that you've struggled to find 
investors really says something like do you think when it comes to restaurants ones that are owned by you know people of color people from marginalized groups is the bay area really progressive in that that private money where people might be able to invest in a business and help it succeed is going to start finding its (laughs) way to these groups or is it still going to be a struggle yeah i think it's still going to be a struggle like people are short-sighted i mean i knew even when the recovery efforts started like People just want to throw things at the symptom and not deal with the root. You know, it's easy to talk about the symptoms. It's easy Mm. to like, you know, feel, I mean, and I get it. Like people want to have agency in a time where everything is chaos. Like even my employees, like we're not in a transformative spot right now. We just need more wages and we need, you know, like they don't want to talk about sort of the fact that we're in the place that we're in is because this government doesn't look like undocumented folks as equal humans, right, (laughs) that are deserving of unemployment. Mm -hmm. The fact that people have to decide between paying their rent and paying their, like, their health, that's the problem, right? And so, yeah, it's going to take a while for people to, like, question these more root causes across the board, you know? But certainly with the private sector, like, you know, in the public sector, like, we need to keep pushing. Uh, We need to keep dreaming big about what it's going to take to change our food systems and our restaurant industry. And and there's like individualized stuff that people can be doing, you know, like for me, I'm like, that really means, you know, as gatekeepers with our voices, with our money for, with our resources, our, our, our social capital, where are we choosing to invest our time and money? Right. Because that's what keeps things going. Right. Like it's like, normalizes them so that's on the very individual level but on the like systemic level we need reparations like communities we need to level this playing field a little bit and the people who have privilege in this industry need to just give something up i mean i'm giving something up it's going to take all of us to give a little bit up in order to uh really sort of build this thing back up from the ground up. I don't know if I can start the revolution within my bakery, but maybe I can build a cadre of folks. I don't know. Like we're, you know, (laughs) we're using this worker ownership opportunity to be like, all right, well, we can't just turn into a cooperative. Like if you just create these structures, people are just going to replicate what they see outside. We know that in the food world, that's like a microcosm. The way the food system works is basically a reflection of how the society works outside of it. And so for me, I'm like, oh, we have an opportunity here because like food is at the intersection of all these communities that it's going to take to challenge power on a larger scale. Let's organize them. But yeah, like let's build their leadership. Let's have them use, like let's use COVID this moment of pandemic to because they're questioning things, really engage them about all these systems of power at play. Maybe get them angry a little bit. Maybe build their leadership in the workplace so that they can like take it back into their communities and fight for things like universal health care and all the things. So when you talk about dismantling these sort of structures of like traditional restaurant world and the industry, especially through like, let's say mentorship of workers and staff and like really getting them to learn how to sustain a different way of doing things. Like what sorts of values are you imparting on people? Like, how do you do that? Well, we call it, we sort of talk about it as like learning and unlearning because these systems are so entrenched uh, in our psyche. Like the narratives that particularly communities that have lived on the margins for pretty much all their life, (laughs) 
um, are told that they they can't be in positions of power, are scared of power because in their sort of experience of power, it's always been power over them, right? My workers always talk about this, like, I can't speak English, I'm not, I can never be an owner or, you know, I'll never have enough money to be able to provide for my family or, you know, I'm undeserving of this or that. So it takes a lot of unlearning of those things, of seeing other communities that have overcome um, those narratives. And how do we build another narrative for ourselves of like, everybody's telling us this is how the restaurant industry has to be, but what could it be, you know, and sort of building that muscle to imagine something different. It just takes work. Uh, It takes trust building. Uh, It also, you know, not to sound cheesy, but like it's tapping into our ancestral knowledge. You know, we all come from communities of struggle in some way or another. It's like tapping back into that because we've been taught that that knowledge is not important. It's only what the officials tell us. It's only what the government tells us. And we know in this last year that has been bogus, right? Um, So like (laughs) we're teaching them distrust a little bit of of like what they've been told and helping them learn how to trust what one their gut tells them what their lived experience tells them then it takes like some real skills building like the very basics of like how to communicate how to not like perpetuate systems of patriarchy all these like deep entrenched things in us like it just takes practice um, that we can create at least a culture that is liberatory. That's the best word I can think about <laughs> to describe it, right? Because I hate that word equitable. I'm like, fucking, like, we all just want to be free. We all just want to stand in our dignity. Like, if you really think about that, that's like what people want at the very basic levels. So I want to hold up and um, bring this back to something that Reem says, which is, People just want to throw things at the symptom and not deal with the root. So she's talking about the root causes of inequity. And I wanted to also go back to a story that you did about how the Black Lives Matter movement in the summer of 2020 galvanized a lot of people to spend money at Black-owned businesses, right? Especially restaurants. And I want to hear about that. I think listeners should hear about it. Just how, I don't know, like, how long did it last? (laughs) What did it come out to? Right. I don't think it was much. Right. Like in the moment, everything felt like, oh, my God, this could last forever. People are doing these like they were using, obviously, delivery platforms and stuff, but they were spending money at these businesses that they had never gone to before. But the matter was like more complicated than that. And I think that kind of played into why it didn't last, because a lot of these restaurants that were getting new business, you know, there was especially there was one in Oakland. Right. It was a hyper black space, as in it was in a black neighborhood. The clientele was really black. They played hip hop like it was one of those spots. And they started seeing an uptick in takeout orders. But I remember talking to one of the one of the guys that ran the place and the conversation was really just about how they knew that if they were open to where people could come physically and eat there, like white people wouldn't show up. So they knew that the moment had a time limit. Like they were urged to go out and spend and that was about it, right? Just to help out in that second. And then the other part of it was an angle of power. There aren't that many black people in the Bay Area. You know, stories have been done. We all know this. Like, our wealth is very limited, as it is nationally. So it isn't like we can keep our own businesses afloat by themselves. 
And that put more power on the white dollar during that time because who they chose to save or spend money at would end up dictating what the black restaurant scene would look like post-pandemic because those places would survive, right? So it was just this weird thing of like the money was appreciated, it was cool, but I do think there was an acknowledgement among a lot of black business owners that it wouldn't last and it was clear that it didn't. Right. Yeah. And I certainly had a part to play in that, too. Right. Where one of the things that I did, because I don't you know, we were stuck at home um, and I don't really have that many talents beyond <laughs> putting together lists and things. So I made a directory, right, of like black owned restaurants and pop ups and food businesses in the Bay Area, inspired by a similar one in Los Angeles. And I just it was just sort of an exercise for me personally as a critic just to see and have a resource that I could fall back on to in case I was noticing gaps in my coverage. And I know there's certainly gaps in my coverage. And of course, you know, people shared it and it became this big thing. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where like you couldn't access the sheet because there were too many people in the Mm -hmm. sheet, right? But even then I noticed it tapered off pretty quickly. I could see just the numbers of people accessing the sheet, right? And there are so many people offering free resources to me. Like I'll, I'll make you a sweet map. I'll make you a website, all that stuff. And I was just over and over again telling them to, to go to, the existing organizations that were doing this work and making these sort of business um, directories and offering them their services for free because, you know, they were, they're Black-led organizations. I am just a person with time. You know, I don't need help. I don't need anybody. It did get pushback, though, which I anticipated, which was basically just, you know, you can't solve racism by spending money at places. Mm. And it's true, right? Like if you are engaging with this within the terms of capitalism, capitalism is not going to save us from systemic issues right. that are caused by capitalism. Right. Yeah. right? Um, the poison is not the cure. So it's so deep, right? Again, like Reem says, it's the root that we need to worry about, not the symptoms. And that is going to require a lot more sacrifice than spending money and getting something delicious in return, right? Yeah, no, 100%. And I, and I want to go back to this. Like, I, I know you were saying that about the list that, that you made, but that thing was important and it was well-received. And I think what it did for a lot of Black businesses was know that there is someone out there who is reminding people that there are a lot of Black-owned businesses in the Bay Area, right? Like, you know, even I've written stories about how, you know, it feels like there aren't many or that we need more. But we forget sometimes how deeply rooted Black-owned businesses are out here. And so that the list was really good for that. And I think part of the fatigue that came after it, I've been trying to tell people this before, like, I feel like that fatigue had been four years in the making. You know, Mm. this conversation, the Black Lives Matter conversation, and people forget that this thing has had roots since like 2016. What the pandemic did was breathe new life into the movement and make it feel like national and then global. But people in the Bay Area, if you go all the way back to Kaepernick taking a knee, have been, there's been a demographic that has been tired of this. And the pandemic gave it a boost. You know, the protests gave it a boost. But I feel like we were already at the end when it comes to how much bandwidth a lot of people out here had to have a conversation about Black issues. But yeah, it's a reminder that there's always work to do, right? Like, there's always work to do, even if the person in the White House is someone who seems like you like them. (laughs) Um, Again, that's a symptom. It's not a root cause. Right, right, right. And... As Reem demonstrates, 
we get tired. We uh, try really hard. Um, we also need to make time for ourselves. Thanks to Reem Seal for being in conversation with us. You can find out more about what she's up to on her website, reemscalifornia.com, or on social media at reemscalifornia. She and her team are always putting on pop-ups and showing up at farmer's markets. And you can also support her and her team by buying into her meal kit program, Reams in the Home. So final thoughts. I know that in the newspaper business, we want to always have solutions for how to fix everything. So how do we fix capitalism? Right. I have no damn clue. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's it. I wish I had some succinct thing to say. I have no idea. My personal Answer to that, how would I ensure that I don't have to be a part of a capitalist society where I'm working every day just hoping for a paycheck would be something, some kind of criminal robbery activity, but I'm not going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think this is one of those questions where normal solutions journalism just doesn't quite capture everything, right? Because if we're going to be asking for a total shift in the way we organize our society, it's going to take a lot of movement and a lot of, a lot of shifting, a lot of sacrifice and a lot of change. Um, I'm not talking about mass executions, but more just these seemingly small scale gestures, like what Reem was talking about in our interview, right? Um, I think that's the cool thing about talking to her is that she really demonstrates how change happens through these really intentional movements, these intentional shifts that if you have a modicum of power, like you should really think about. Thanks again to Rima Seal for talking to us and to Erica Carlos for producing this episode. Thanks also to King Kaufman and Sarah Feldberg. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you might have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thank you for listening.